Hello there, and welcome back to my show, all you beautiful goats. I have my coffee here, it's my day off, I'm feeling nice and synergized, and I think that we have an episode for y'all. So it's gonna be fun. I hope that everything is going good for all of you, wherever all of you are, and whenever all of you are, because as I'm posting this onto the internet, it will be available for the foreseeable future, and whenever you hear it, I hope that you are doing well. Amidst all the cataclysms and catastrophes, big and small, that we experience day to day in life now. But I hope that as a goat, you are able to climb to new heights and reach new peaks, as goats do. And, um, yeah, we're gonna get started. So today, we're gonna be talking about the King James witch hunts, or I guess King James and some witch hunts, of 16th and 17th century Europe. So... Studying American history in school, I remember learning about the Salem witch trials. However, I never remember learning anything of the witch hunts that swept across Europe from 1450 to 1750. These resulted in the trials of an estimated 100,000 individuals, with a little less than half of whom were put to death. This is the sort of emergent phenomenon that sporadically happened in various places. However, a fair amount of chaos and hysteria can be directly traced back to King James, the sixth, who is credited with writing a text that tells of everything from witch hunting, the behavior of demons, werewolves, vampires, and the like. The book titled Demonology or Daemonology is said to be one of the main sources for Shakespeare's Macbeth. Now, as probably everyone knows, the more popular text attributed to him, the King James Version of the Bible, which happens to be one of the most printed books in history, a lot of people probably don't know about the origins of the translation itself. At least I didn't. But anyways, King James commissioned the translation with the help of various scholars, and while it still faces many criticisms from some theologians, it remains the most used translation in much of Christianity today. So that is a little bit of the backstory on the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, but however, isn't a topic that we're focusing on today. Uh, we're going to talk more about King James's life and about the trials specifically in Scotland and in England. Born to Mary, Queen of Scots, and Henry Stuart of Lord Danley, James succeeded to the Scottish throne at the age of 13 months after his mother was essentially forced to abdicate. He reigned for 57 years and 246 days, the longest of any Scottish monarch. So... King James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England in 1603, and he gets Ireland in this as well, becoming king of the three kingdoms. So the king is someone that is steeped in paranormal activity and is said that as a young boy he foretold of his mother's death to one of his close servants. And here's the quote from Sir John Harrington. 
His Highness told me her death was visible in Scotland before it did really happen, being, as he said, spoken of in secret by those whose power of sight presented to them a bloody head dancing in the air. Which is a little spooky because she was beheaded. So, it is speculated that he was most likely a homosexual. It is said that King James became even more vigilant in his fight against witchcraft after storms at sea threatened his life and the life of his new bride, Anne of Denmark. This is seen as the one romantic gesture that the king ever really does, and that's going to get his new bride and bring her back to Scotland. So the princess had attempted to set sail for Scotland, but was driven back to shore by violent storms. James took it upon himself to personally sail to Denmark in order to bring his new bride home. The Danish at the time were extremely superstitious and firmly believed that witches had made demonic pacts and were followers of the devil. They were seen as the worst of society and actively hunted. James also began to believe that the storms that had threatened his wife's trip were the work of sorcery. So the couple stays for a bit and then they head back to Scotland in May 1590 and of course more storms come. They end up losing a ship in their convoy or whatever you would call it, armada. I don't know. Um, the king becomes enthralled with the idea that he had been a victim of some sort of supernatural curse. And in a somewhat desperate attempt to find the witches that had cast the spell against his new marriage, King James begins one of the most high-profile witch hunt cases in European history. With no fewer than 70, sp 70 suspects, although the number is estimated to be somewhere between 70 and 100. Torturous interrogation methods were implicated and most suspects soon confessed, many telling of bizarre rituals and gruesome spells that were used to conjure the storm. These include binding the severed genitalia and limbs of a dead man to the legs of a cat, then tossing the bundle into the waves. Okay, yeah, I could see how that would probably work. Another confession said that Satan himself appeared and did a black mass with them. There's this direct quote that says... Promised to raise a mist and cast the king into England, for which purpose he threw into the sea a thing like a football. <sighs> I'm not really sure what that's mean, supposed to mean, but I kind of just threw it in there for kicks because it was cool to have some direct quotes from some witches. Or whatever. Some spooky witches. Some spooky direct quotes. Um, he had one of the main suspects, Agnes Sampson, brought to Holyrood House in Edinburgh so that he could question her himself. When she stood stiffly in denial of the charges against her, she had all her hair shaved off in each part of her body and her head thrown with a rope, according to the custom of the country, being a pain most grievous. Um, so this is like kind of like they shave your head completely so it's just that soft skin on your head, and then they just give you rope burn all over your head, I, I think. Um, they did this for at least an hour while the king looked on with great delight, but Agnes apparently surprised the king by relaying details about his wedding night with Anne. The king's majesty wondered greatly and swore by the living God that he believed all the devils in hell could not have discovered the same, acknowledging her words to be most true and therefore gave them more credit to the rest that is before declared. It doesn't say what she said, but I think it was something that at least embarrassed him. Um, he thought no one knew about it. 
As you can imagine, this is only more fuel to the fire as it only strengthens his already growing interest in witches, and it starts to get a little personal for him. Um, the North Berwick trials were unique because although witchcraft was considered a serious offense, it wasn't pursued by courts until this case. James decided that this had to change, and after the North Berwick trials, he implemented stricter laws against witches, and also commissioned a pamphlet called News from Scotland, which told of the entire saga, and also included a great deal of anti-witchcraft propaganda. So he really starts to get into these pamphlets and starting to write this stuff. Uh, in 1591, there was a unique trial when Mary Napier had been accused of consulting a witch with treasonable intent, a charge that was the first of its kind. James was convinced that Napier should die, however, she claimed to be pregnant. He hoped the court would determine whether or not she was pregnant, and then if she wasn't, burn her, but all of this was avoided when she was acquitted by the court. In 1597, he writes his book, Demonology, a book that is supposed to contain the science of demons. The aim of this book was not only to bring light to the existence of witchcraft, but also to be used in aid in the fight against witches. The book becomes the main source material for many witch hunters, including Matthew Hopkins, a man that referred to himself as the Witchfinder General. And I feel like Matthew Hopkins is a real-life Van Helsing character. Maybe we'll talk about him later. Um... He was really all about it, and one of the most prominent uh, witch-hunting figures of this time. The book had many misogynistic elements, and I have a couple quotes here from Demonology directly to show that point. As, the, as that sex is frailer than man is, so is it easier to be entrapped in these gross snares of the devil. Um, there's a lot of just, like women being more evil than men type of stuff, or a lot of stuff like that, and they have this as well. As was overall proved to be true by the serpent's deceiving of Eve at the beginning, which makes him the friendlier with that sex since then. So they're basically saying since the fall of Adam, which was really a woman's fault. And this is so fucking stupid. I'm sorry I even said that. Um... Yeah, that they've been lesser, so it's kind of ridiculous. But another little interesting thing is that in his translation of the Bible, he changes all references to witches to be rewritten in the female gender. Which, the whole witches only being female thing is really getting on my nerves, guys. Boys can be witches too. Um, I will die on that platform. That's something I care about. Anyways, when Elizabeth I dies in 1603... He is named successor, he finds new grounds to stage his fight against witchcraft, and by this time at least half of the accused witches in Scotland had already been burned. Just a year after this, he decides to change Elizabethan statutes on witchcraft and replace it with a much harsher version, continuing his efforts in creating legislation against the supernatural. His new statute made hanging mandatory for a first offense of witchcraft, even if the accused had not committed murder. And if the accused was found to have the devil's mark on their body, a mole or teat-like mark believed to have been made when the devil sucked on a part of the witch's body to seal their satanic pack. <sighs> All this weird suckling, too. Come on, guys. What's this about? So that, that was enough uh, to condemn them to death. It had the little suckle marks, if you will. Um, his hard work seemed to be starting to pay off, and many copycat pamphlets 
brought forth a new resurgence of witch trials, the most famous of them being the Pendleton Witch Trial of 1612. The twelve suspects brought before the court of Assises, all from the area around Pendle Hill in Lancashire, were charged with the murders of ten people by witchcraft. In total, ten were found guilty and hanged, one was found not guilty, and another died in prison. The accounts of their trial, written by Thomas Potts, was one of the most popular works of the day and helped secure the Pendle Witch's place in history. Since the state controlled the printing industry, details of which trials were often manipulated, omitted, or changed completely to ensure the general public that justice had indeed been served. The most obvious case of this seems to be that of the wonderful discovery of the witchcrafts of Margaret and Philip Flower, daughters of Joan Flower, near Bever Castle. In 1613, the Earl of Rutland's two young sons were stricken by a mysterious illness at Belvoir Castle. The elder of the two died shortly afterwards. The other lingered for a further six and a half years before following his brother to the grave. By the time of the younger's death, three local women, Joan Flower and her daughters Margaret and Philippa, had been convicted of bewitching the boys. Joan had died in custody and her daughters had been found guilty and hanged at Lincoln Castle in 1619. Of course, the king was naturally interested in the case because it involved one of the most prominent members of his court, but there was another connection, his closest favorite. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the jargon, favorite is essentially a term used to describe the very, very close friends of some monarchs, if you catch my drift. <clears throat> this is also, while it is speculated that King James was a homosexual, he had a couple of favorites, and he kept them very, very close. George Villers, future Duke of Buckingham, had married Rutland's daughter, Catherine, shortly after her second brother's death. As the only surviving child, Catherine stood to inherit one of the richest estates in the kingdom. Her new husband, therefore, had a vested interest in the health of her sickly brother, and there is evidence to suggest that he may have had the boy murdered. He almost certainly commissioned the pamphlet that was published shortly after the Flower Sisters' trials as a means of quelling any doubts as to their guilt. Most witchcraft trials constituted grave miscarriages of justice, but this one was especially shocking. Skepticism from the general populace had already been building, and after this case, his interest in witchcraft seems to start to dwindle. In the last nine years of his reign, only five people were hanged for witchcraft in England. James dies in 1625, with much of the vigor of witch hunting dying with him, and so the Salem Witch Trials in 1693. In Scotland, over 4,000 people were interrogated for their supposed crimes as witches, and at least 1,500 were sentenced to death, most of them hanged or strangled and then burned. Thanks for listening to my episode on King James and the Witch Hunters. Please feel free to... Share, like, comment, subscribe, whatever, all that good shit, and hopefully I'll have another episode for you guys soon. This one was really fun, and I want to kind of keep doing some witchy, kind of spooky type things for the fall.